Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Mike Claiborne here. And guess what? We're going to talk a little baseball today. We haven't done it in a while. And one of the people I always rely on when it comes to Cardinal baseball, or just the game itself, is Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He's been covering the team for a while. Also did a really good job covering hockey, and that's where we first met. And, I, and there's sometimes I miss you, although Jeremy Rutherford is doing a nice job for the athletic, and as is Jim Thomas for the post, so we're covered on that front. But, Derek, it's, first of all, it's good to talk to you, man. I mean, little do we know in that middle <laughs> day in March that we would be in this predicament at this time, although I think I might have been one of the first ones to say I, th- I didn't think we'd come back until July, and not because I knew anything more, but it just had a feel like this thing was going to get out of control and nobody knew where it was going to end up, and, and we still don't. Yeah, I mean, the the we kind of knew walking away that there was some optimism there and also some, like, business reasons why they spoke that way, right? Like, you know, postponing games as opposed to canceling them, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it just felt like, the the rush the onrush of the virus was there and it was a question of when the tidal wave would hit and how long it would linger um and then recede and you know the the april 9th prediction or the the one week two week notice it just all kind of sped up really fast i remember like you know it was like an eight-day span where you think about it like they they announced that they've released gyro munoz and eight days later there's no baseball and at the same time, you know, they, they announced that they released Gerald Munoz because he just left the facility and didn't report to any of the medical um, exams that he had and, you know, had 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 an issue with his role and everything like that. It was the same day they told us that they were urging players to wash their hands more and carry baseballs to toss the fans and not shake hands and stuff like that. And, I mean, and, they, and like, you know, within five days, the NBA is canceled within – six major league baseball closes his spring training. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. And even within the scope of four days, we go to the ballpark knowing that we won't be able to talk to the players in the clubhouse to go into the ballpark, wondering if there would be fans in the stands to go into the ballpark, knowing that there wasn't going to be baseball for a while. It's just, it happened very fast, but I think we all kind of saw with each passing day, the return of baseball was getting more distant, not closer. And that's what I wanted to bring up because, um, when you look at this whole thing, we think we're getting close, but it seems like the goalpost keeps getting moved further back. But what do you see the biggest underlying challenge that baseball, its players, employees, partners, and certainly fans, what are they going to have to deal with here? Because there seems like there's a lot of road work in front of us before we can even think about somebody hitting the field. Yeah. I mean, you look at just the the nature of the details there, Mike, with um, all the, proactive protection and conservative um, testing and, or I mean, widespread testing, everything that's necessary just to get a ball player to the ballpark. And then you start thinking about like scaling that up, right? How many people can be at the ballpark at a time? Is it 150? Is it 200? Is it, you know, 100 for one team and, um, you know, 50 from another? I mean, how does, how, how do you go about just like understanding the, the skeleton crew that it takes to put on a baseball team and still be protected. And where do those meet? I mean, you know, this, some of the things that they're asking the players to change too, you know, like habits of licking fingers and tossing the ball around and all these things that are muscle memory, I think is really interesting, especially because I mean, are they, are you going to, is a guy going to be given 
I mean, there's no technical foul in baseball. So what happens when a pitcher licks his fingers or when, you know, a team is so overcome with exuberance, you know, because of, um, because of a game winning hit or a, a decisive play that they can't high five, they can't hug all these things that they've been conditioned to do and enjoy you're asking them to break some serious habits. I, I think it's fascinating how they're going to pull it off. Well, uh, and I agree with you. Um, one, who's going to be in charge of recognizing when there is a uh, a breaking of the of the suggestions? And I'll just, I won't say rules. Uh, the umpires have enough on their plate as it is, and to have them try and enforce something. And what's the penalty? As you mentioned, is it a ball? Is it a strike? Or I mean, I mean, I don't know what the the penalty is going to be. Is it going to be a letter like it used to be where if you stepped yeah. outside the batter's box, instead of trying to in, enhance play, they just say, I will send them a letter. We'll find them that way. And players are like, so what? We don't care. I mean, it doesn't seem like it has right. that much of an impact. But, you know, in this case, I just think there's so much more to do. And, and you read the, the, the program, that the, the proposal that Major League Baseball sent out. My question is, who's going? how many people you, are you going to have to train and how much time do you think it's going to take to get everybody on board? Because you get one kick at the can at this. You get right. one shot at right. this. And if you don't have people properly trained, and I don't know who's going to do the training, and I don't know how they're going to train them to do what, but it just seems like between now and the the, the date that they circle in the sky being the first week of July, I just think there's a lot of legwork to do. And we haven't even started talking about the negotiations, which I'll get to in a bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there, you know, they, like uh, John Moselek, I think it was on KMOX, had a good line where he said, you know, the new normal is o- is over or something like that. Whatever you've come to expect is normal in baseball. It won't be there. Um, you, you just have a lot of things. I don't, I don't know. Just like it's like with each solution, there is a fracturing to ten more questions, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like the questions grow exponentially, and the answers don't. And that should give everybody pause, you know, and, and you're right. And that's even before that's, that's when we're dealing with the most important part about it, which is the health and what risks are you willing to take to bring the game back? It's, it's on a smaller scale, what cities are asking themselves, right? Businesses are asking themselves, what risks are you willing to take and where can you find that moment that it makes sense to come back? Um, baseball is lacquering it up, uh, you know, lacquering itself up with all sort of preventative measures that it could possibly employ, but it does take new training, new thinking, new habits, new policy, new acceptance. Um, and, the, and you wonder, like, does it just get so confusing, so overwhelming that it's just impossible to do? Well, and, and I agree with you on the last point. Uh, it, it will be so overwhelming for creatures of habit. And, and if you yeah. know baseball players as well as anyone – Anytime they get out of their comfort zone, we're going to hear about it, and it's going to be a bigger story. And to ask them to put all this on a plate that's already full with regard to them just being able to go out and execute, I I think, man, it's it's going to take some getting used to, and maybe you tell them, well, it's only going to be for the season, and maybe we'll scale it back for next year. I just think there's a lot on the plate. So let me run this by you because – we we're we're talking about the safety issues and the training and everything, but there's a bigger issue at hand, and that's the players and the owners trying to figure out how the money is going to work. So, if you will, because there have been a lot of 
I guess, misunderstandings of how this whole thing unfolds, including some of the players. If you don't believe me, ask Blake Snell because I thought his explanation just didn't just, just didn't wash. So give me your impression mm-hmm. of how these negotiations and what are we discussing? What are we negotiating between player and owner? Yeah, okay, so the crux of the current argument is when um, – is what the agreement was in May, or I'm sorry, in March. Like, um, you know, how how rigid is that and what exactly was there? And you think you dial it back to March and it becomes clear that they're dealing with some kind of possible shortened season. Um, you know, and owners want to know how to deal with the salary. Players want to know how to deal with the salary. There was the question of how much of their per diem from spring training would they be paid? What would minor leaguers face? And how much uh, would the major leaguers face? Um, be paid you know major leaguers are paid based on the games played you know in a season right and so at that time there was an agreement that the players would make a prorated salary based on the number of games that they could get in now the owners have come back and said well look the the equation has changed because fans won't be in the stands for these games that means tickets won't be sold and so the revenue is not the same for you know uh, an august 12th game in this current plan than we thought it was at the end of March. And so we need to revisit this. Um, the union has said, you know, no, an agreement is an agreement and that's what we want. The owners have come out with a proposal, um, that they voted on and, you know, it's a discussion whether or not they're negotiating in the media or whether they've, you know, formally presented it. They've had conversations back and forth, but the owners is, is, are presenting a 50, 50 split of the revenue, which sounds far more simpler than it is. And you know this from your experience, you know, as an agent and your fondness for hockey and everything like that, it can take months for the two sides to argue and debate what the definition of revenue is. And they're trying to vacuum pack that into, you know, this, the slip and slide for a week towards agreement. Um, you know, where the revenue streams come from, what constitutes revenue, where does MLB network fit into the revenue? What does, uh, you know, the postseason revenue look like? What do, you know, what do all these things look like? And if, and if owners are saying they lose money when an empty stadium is in there, then are the, they just asking the players to share in that risk when they have been reluctant um, through the years to have, to allow players to share in, in the bonus and, you know, to w- enter into that uh, agreement. And then, of course, is the fact that it creates this de facto salary cap, which is what revenue sharing of that ilk does. So that's the crux of it. And then you have all these tendrils coming off of it. You know, um, you have arguing and leaking and discussing and reporting about the, the union knowing that they would have to revisit this and, and rethink things. Um, if there was stand, if there were no fans in the stands. And then of course you have, um, major league baseball saying, well, we, we negotiated that in good faith, when we thought we could have a season with fans um, and the union pushing back saying, but you knew this was always a possibility. We discussed it. So, you know, on and on it goes. And that's, that's where the tension is. And it all comes down to what we've seen over the last few years, which is a lack of trust between the two sides. Um, the union just isn't willing to accept the uh, ownership's definition of revenue and ownership has pushed back and really position the players to be the ones that are resisting the return to play. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the agent days for a minute. Um, 
Yeah. I'm with the Players Association. We're having a meeting, and this is when the salary cap, it was the first year. And I posed the question, and it eventually became the term defined gross revenue. And they told mm-hmm. us, well, they're going to get the TV money, they're going to get this. And I said, what about the luxury box revenue? And you would have thought I asked the guy for the the uh, dress size of his wife uh, because they hadn't yeah. thought about it. And, and and so as I tried to explain it to him, I said, what about these buildings that have luxury boxes? And he said, well, every building doesn't have it. I said, well, I got news for you. Every building will have it. And that's going to be a defined gross revenue. That's got to be part of it. And they had to stop what they had to do because they had not signed the deal yet with the owners. And they had to go back and renegotiate that. So I see where the players are going here, but this is the same path you take when you do get involved in a salary cap era because you do have the items that you can derive uh, from with regard to what revenue is going to be counted. And this is where it gets messy because the players are going to try and pick and choose. The owners are going to circle certain things that they're going to say, and they've got to come on and get on the same page and figure out, all right, what are the things we're going to actually work from? Because you're going to take a little, we're going to give a little on both sides. And I think that's the way good negotiation should work in the first place. Well, we might be seeing that, Mike, to be candid. You know, I I, uh, I was looking at this yesterday and kind of thinking through, you know, what both sides are. And, you know, I think the, I think the union you mentioned, like Blake Snell, um, I, I'm, I understand like the, the frustration and even like the pushback to what he said, I'm still somewhat glad that he entered into the conversation because we haven't heard that kind of raw honesty, whether we agree with it or not, at least it's part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think players need to probably, I, I just was talking with Ben Fredrickson about this for the, for the podcast that we do. Um, you know, just this notion of like, you know, they have a good message. They really need to work on their messengers and help, you know, really formulate like who is going to speak the union side so that they can go out there and say, we want to play baseball too. We are on the side of playing baseball. Let's see how we can do this. Um, you know, and then the other side of that really is this, you know, the, the fact that the owners have controlled so much, uh, of the narrative just by the nature of the fact that they get to go first. And that got me thinking about how like arbitration hearings work, right? Um, it wasn't too long ago, four or five, six years ago, where you'd see the team shoot low and the agents shoot high, so they met in the middle, right? Right. If you think about this discussion as an arbitration hearing, which it's an imperfect analogy, but it kind of works for negotiations like you're describing, you have one sh- group shooting low, the owners, and the other one shooting who wants high, the players. If the owners want to get the players to agree to less than what they did in March, one way to do that is to do that far lower and then arrive at a midpoint. And you could see some of that going on. It's, yeah. it's actually, I think it's a big part of what, what the discussion is going on is the owners understanding where that tipping point is for their intake of revenue and their you know, output of player salary. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I think because these guys have been at the table before, and you know Rob Manfred was spearheaded the last couple of negotiations, and so he understands the the players. The players understand him, and 
you know, they, they had a pretty civil relationship uh, leading up to this. And, and I would think hopefully they accrued enough good good terms toward each other that they can make this work. I mean, it's not like Gene Ors was in the room anymore. I mean, I think there's a little bit more civility that's taking place. But still in all, they want to make sure they get a fair deal. And I guess we're just trying to figure out where fair might be. Now, with that said, the one element, the one group of players that we're not talking about because they, they're kind of insignificant in one sense are the minor leaguers. And I know there's been this discussion mm-hmm. about a taxi squad. And when you look at the Cardinals, you say, well, you know what? They could probably field a pretty good taxi squad. They've got, they've got enough pitching. There's no question about that. And they've Absolutely. got some other good young prospects that they feel like maybe we can bring them along. But here, here two questions here. How much do you think this is going to stunt the growth of guys who probably need to be somewhere playing? And what is the future of the minor leagues, especially with the fact of them saying we're going to reduce the draft to five rounds? There was already discussion about contraction of the minor leagues in different cities and leagues themselves. Where does that leave the minor league situation as we know or as we knew it on March 15th? Forever changed. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think you're going to see a distillation of talent. Is that the right word? Yeah, talent distilled um, in the minor leagues, meaning you know, some teams this year are going to have to focus on the prospects that they identify today as priority. Um, you know, they're going to have to reduce ranks. The, they'll have to create some kind of extended spring training, something because it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to understand or see a minor league season taking place. And it also means that there'll be fewer minor league teams because some will go out of business. And so you'll get the attrition that major league baseball wanted, but not in the way that they wanted. Um, you might even get a more dramatic attrition than, you know, the original, what 40, 42 that were supposed to fold. So, um, I, I worry. Um, I think, I think there are two things that, um, are happening and we can touch on both of them is, you know, that, that game that the Cardinals played there, Roger Dean stadium that felt so awkward as we watched it unfold and baseball was closing baseball operations is, you know, I, I wonder if we saw the last of National League Baseball as we know it. And mm-hmm. I certainly think that as those minor leaguers scattered um, to leave the facility and go back to their homes or, or to the Dominican, where some players who, you know, like the Venezuelan players remain um, there in the Dominican, uh, what they, they were leaving behind a minor league system that we won't see again, too. Where that where that the the biggest concern for me is somewhat of a romantic concern. Um, one is that, you know, baseball will lose touch with some of its grassroots fan base. You think about like Cardinal fans in Johnson city or Cardinal fans in Peoria or Cardinal fans in the middle of Pennsylvania at state college who have a tie because they get to see their, their teams grow up. You think about like Oliver Marmol and what that state college team came to mean for that community and the attention they got and everything like that. Um, I, I'm not sure that you'll have that at that small of a scale anymore. Um, you know, that accessible as a, as a kid who grew up with triple a baseball, I figured triple a baseball will be there, but I still was in Denver, Colorado, not, a, not a big, not, I mean, not a small city. And I had minor league baseball. Um, what about, you know, some of the kids who are sort of in the baseball oasis, the baseball deserts, if you will. Um, you know, where do they go for baseball? If you start closing out the teams that are in Montana, the, you know, the professional teams that's, you know, are out in Utah, 
um, how many wide tracts of land are suddenly without baseball and therefore are no longer on the minds of the people living in there. And then the other thing is, a, is that I think that I worry about is that uh, we've lost the, the late bloomer. Um, I'm not sure there will be the time or the at-bats or the innings or the affiliates for players to continue on and have that pitcher who figures things out at 27, have that six-year free agent who gets to just, you know, crank through, rework his swing, um, get healthy. You know, you think you think of some of the guys who, like a Ryan Ludwig, what would his path look like with a smaller minor league system? You think about a guy like John Brebbia, what would his path look like with um, out an independent ball stop or without an expanded um, minor league system? You know, you think about a shortened draft, Guess this will definitely be on the players drafted in those first five rounds. And how many gems will the Cardinals find beyond that that they can sign? You know, what, who's to say that the Matt Carpenter of 2020 will sign with the Cardinal, Cardinals? Why, why would, who's to say that the Trevor Rosenthal or Albert Pujols or Kevin Segrist or any of these late-round picks who have really contributed, who's to say that they're going to sign with the Cardinals once that draft is done? Um, you know, if they look and see that maybe their hometown team or their nearby team or a team with a less deep farm system is, uh, is gonna, um, is more appealing. Um, and what of the penalties, the Astros, like those don't look so bad anymore. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, if they can just accumulate picks afterwards, I'm going to go one step further on this because, you know, Owners are going to be looking for money and cash. And when in doubt and when need of cash, you expand. This will certainly curtail any opportunities for expansion for at least the next couple, three years, because the talent pool will be diminished. Uh, you know, you, you would be able to find some guys that you could throw in an expansion draft that, that may not have a role on your ball club and your organization, but they could certainly be in the big leagues with expansion. I think that that's an, a revenue stream that the owners have to think about losing for a while because they won't have enough quality players to stock it. And if they do think they can get away with it, we're going to see all kind of records broken because the game will be too watered down. Well, and they, but they, there may be no – this might be the time of biggest need for expansion because that's such a cash infusion for owners. Yeah, who, you're right. Let's face it. But where they are they going to get the players each from? each other out. Yeah, but I think the question is, will they be able to stock enough players? Uh, obviously, the draft is important. And, and as you just touched on, the free agency and really knowing how to recruit. Rec we're talking about recruiting players now who are going to have some options. Absolutely. That's, that's going to really come into play. And if you don't have legitimate recruiters in your organization, you're going to end up watching a lot of good players walk by your ball club. Yeah. No, and I think that's a real – I think it's a real concern for, you know, two thirds of the teams, you know, I mean, I, no one wants to say it, but you know, do the Yankees have an edge? Cause they're the Yankees. Do the Dodgers have an edge mm -hmm. because they're the Dodgers Do you know, do the Rangers have an edge because they're, you know, or the Astros have an edge because of where they're located, the, the Padres, all these things, you know, I, I'm real eager to see how teams identify, pursue, and then um, land some of these players after the draft is over. Um, and also, I, I just think that there'll be players who are overlooked. 
they mm-hmm. won't get their chance. No, you're They'll right. have to go in the workforce, and they they won't there won't be the late bloomers. There just won't be, you know, like uh, I mean, some of these players who are really good college players um, who maybe don't have. You know, maybe what's the old phrase? Maybe don't look that great in jeans, or maybe haven't just grown into their strength, or haven't been exposed to how to throw a cutter right yet. They might not get the chance. Derek Gould is our guest. He's with the Post Dispatch. We're talking a little baseball here. Let's talk about something on a professional level here, because um, this whole pandemic has affected everyone—players, managers, organizations, and media. Uh, what have you heard on how the game will be covered from this point on? I don't think we'll see it like we used to. I, I can bet on the fact that access to the clubhouse will be limited, if not eliminated, for this year. Uh, but what else are you hearing, and how do you think we're going to have to cover it? Because the other thing that goes into this, Derek, is when, when baseball comes back, they're going to actually be competing for act for fans uh, or for viewers yeah. and readers, because you're going to be competing with the NHL and the NBA, college football, and the NFL are going to be just around the corner. They used to have July and August basically to themselves. Now they're going to compete, but they won't have the vehicle to get the word out and have the stories written like they may have had in the past. Because the other thing that comes with this. All the media, especially the print outlets, have been reduced dramatically over the years, so there may not be enough to go around. So how how do you think things are going to be viewed when it comes to coverage of these events? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I know that there's a lot more speculation than answers at this point. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I think all of it, well, I know all of it is going to be adhering to local government policies and, you know, Major League Baseball policies and social distancing. So, you know, I mean, if we're in the press box, then we'll be spaced out. If we're in the press box, we'll likely be wearing masks. I don't, I, I mean, I can't imagine that they're going to limit the clubhouse to a point where, you know, players uh, are limited into how they can go there and front office types and scouts and all that stuff are limited as to who can go in there. Media is not going to go in there. But, you know, you the hope is that we find some way, um, because we've had two months to get creative for us to still um, be able to interview players and talk to players. Um, you know, and the setup just might be something different than we ever had, but as long as it's responsible and respectful and it has the health of the player and the health of the organization and the health of the media in mind, I think we can all work together to get there because you touched on it. There, there are two elements here. One, you know, baseball needs someone to tell the story of its return. And while teams are increasingly tightening the strings on having in-house media and developing their own um, media groups, um, particularly the Cardinals who have done this with uh, content for TV, content for the web, um, you know, content for the scoreboard with their Cardinals insider group. They are definitely focused on the in-house media engine. Um, but reaching fans, you know, also involves folks like us, you know, the, um, you know, the, the traditional, um, but, peripheral um, outside media and how we're involved in telling the story of baseball's return, I think is something that needs to be talked about um, and, and put appropriately valued. Uh, I'm not saying that it, it's just, it's part of the discussion. It's not the most important part of the discussion. Health has to be. We're visiting. Uh, it's not the second most, the second most part, but I think that's, that's part of it, Mike. And then the, um, you know, the other part of it is the players need to recognize too. I hope they do through all this, that if we're if the media is not there, folks like you and I aren't there to ask the players, 
then the entirety of the story is controlled by owners and general managers and their side or their view or their opinion or their stories or their personality will have to come out through social media, um, but it won't have the same reach. And it won't have the same accountability either. Uh, right. Uh, and, and, I, and I also think if you think you can hand this over to a player and let him do it via his Twitter account, then you, you better have a pretty big bucket to bail with because at some point you're going to have to put out a big fire that somebody's going to create because they went one sentence too far and then just followed it up with pushing sin. So I, I just think there's some things that everybody needs to step back and take a long, hard look at before we decide that we're going to alienate people who are working with you and working to get be objective compared to some of the subjective approaches that we may start to see. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. We love talking to the president and chairman of Ameren, Illinois. He is Richard Mark. Emergency Operations Center acts as kind of a central command center, and everything is dictated from there. They tell the crews that are out in the field where to go, where the main breakers are to go to to de-energize the line, and then they verify that that line is closed, and they're able to tell five, six, seven hundred people that are working out in the field exactly where to go to make the proper repairs to get our system back on in a storm situation. Let me ask you this uh, as we wind up things with Derek Gould from the Post-Dispatch. You read the proposals, and while I think some of them were just a CYA, I also think that there are some that are, or, or maybe you can apply, but there's going to be a lot of work that's got to come into it. How much of that do you think is truly realistic? I mean, the whole little league dress at home and dress and go home. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that works because my question would be, all right, if that's the case, what about if you're on the road and it's getaway day? You know, I mean, I think you have better control of a clubhouse and showering and things of that nature than you would a guy stopping off. He's not going to go straight home in a lot of cases. And if you're on the road, I mean, that that even restricts you more. So what do you think of some of the more realistic things that we may see compared to some of the things I think were just tacked on the wall to cover themselves? Well, I think that's a conversation that is essential to have is what of these are ceremonial or superficial changes and what of these are substantive. Um, I would like to have somebody explain to me why players who ride on a bus together when they're at the ballpark have to suddenly sit six feet apart. Um, you know, if the purpose is to effectively quarantine and monitor a team together, then at what point in time do they become like a family unit like we've had here for, for a couple months? Um, you know, I'm allowed to sit on a couch beside my son and in a car beside my son. And if we go outside for a walk, when we come back, we don't have to then maintain six feet of distance. You know, um, at what point in time does a team become that? I know it's not as I'm oversimplifying it, but I think there are some things that are done for the visual element of it as if like, hey, you know, things aren't normal. 
um, people watching at home. We're doing our best. And then there are the substantive things. And I, I think we really need to understand the differences between those. Um, what happens to a guy, as we mentioned, licks his fingers. I mean, there's a lot of different things that, um, that they ought to do, um, but they cannot all be presented as having the same emphasis. It's not like every one of these things that they want to do in this proposal has the same veracity of importance. Um, having total buy-in from players to monitor where they go and limit their outside activities and their outside exposure is essential. Having players be honest about you know, self-quarantining and all that stuff is essential. Um, the responsibility of the team to be proactive um, on the road and away from home in, in knowing where players are going and having that be part of the discussion, um, actually having that be part of the pride of a clubhouse, um, that they are going to stay together, they are going to maintain health, and they are going to follow as many of these rules that are substantive as possible. Um, I, think, I think if we look at all these things you know, as having the same weight, then we're – we're doing it wrong. I mean, you know, like the shower thing versus the constant testing. If there's constant testing and they're able to pull that off, that is the most important thing. And then the other stuff are varying degrees of preventativeness. Well, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, I think we have until the, do you have a drop dead date on the season? I know that the end of the month is when the, the money runs out. And I know that's one of the Ah. reasons why they want to get something going. But, you know, as you and I have just discussed, there's a lot of things that I'm sure they're discussing. I I can assure you that their their organizations and certainly uh, the players are talking about these things more than we are. But at some point, you've got to see some sort of breakthrough. And I guess they want to just keep it close to the vest, you would think, Derek, before they unveil the ultimate big picture? Or or do you think they're still searching for it now because – you know, every minute counts, in my opinion. I don't think this is something you can walk away from unless you walk away to exhale and inhale some new ideas. But then do you continue to complicate matters if you do that? I, I just think it's just such a if you ever talk about your hair being on fire, man, they're just it, gasoline has continued to be poured at this point, And I just don't know when you can cut it off because this is a lot for everybody to try and uh, inhale. And I don't know if everybody can do it or not. No, you're right. One, well, I mean, everything is now on a stopwatch. Um, I don't have a drop dead date. I don't see it that way. I don't know, you know, as you can get as creative as you want to, you know, and, and put as minimal or streamlined a season as you want out there. It's, it's just a test of creativity, not a test of the calendar. Um, it is clear, though, that baseball is trying to operate within this narrow window of time when they see a possibility to play a season before you know the discussed second wave of the virus that, that, that experts describe coming in the fall um, or that you say we saw in 1918 um, with the flu you know this notion that like if you have a chance where you know the virus has receded enough um, and there is the potential of a second kind of wave to deal with then can you fit the game into that narrow pathway and how do you do it and if that's the case then yeah, the clock is definitely ticking, but it's, you know, when, when the season has to start by, I think is just a test of how creative they want to get. They're going to go through all this rigmarole to get guys to the ballpark, play two, 
play two, yeah. play a doubleheader. If you're um, here, you might as you well know, get he, something out of it. And, and, and we don't really need to be right. stuck on 82 games either, do we? Because I, I get the impression that the players might want to play a few more so they can make a little bit more. So right, I, exactly. I don't think that we have to be stuck on the number 82 in order to have a season. <clears throat> yeah. No, I don't know. And the players want more because they want to get paid prorated and they want to have more games. The owners maybe want to reduce. This all comes down to that negotiation and finding that magic midpoint. Um, you know, hey, if the postseason is uh, where the money's at and if the postseason is all that will fit on the calendar, then maybe we have the March madness of baseball postseasons. And, you know, is that ideal? No. Um, is it different? Yes. Is it a moneymaker? Maybe. Um, does it allow for teams to be controlled? I don't know. I, I, I just think, you know, we, we see the, the parallel importance uh, or the parallel emphasis, I should say, that the league is putting on being precautionary, you know, putting the precautions in place for health and then the motivation to play games for revenue. And how do you meet those two where the players will agree? Let's throw in one other equation, one part of the equation, and that's uh, the fact that maybe you might have fans involved where that can generate some additional revenue. Obviously, it may not be the 43 or 44,000 you're expected to see at Bush Stadium, but something right. is better than nothing at this point. And I think that's something that they need to take into account when it might be safe to try and bring in fans to keep them more engaged as well. And, you know, again, uh, another method of trying to generate what revenue you can. Right. Yep. I think that, I think that, yeah, I, there's no easy answer. Like you just hit on all of it. I mean, you know, it just, you know, maybe four or five years from now it's back to normal, but the the (laughs) blistering and the ramifications of this are, are going to go on for a long time and we're going to see it in, franchise values we're going to see it in franchise that have to shutter we're going to see it in payrolls and you know a little sneaky thing to watch here mike is we're going to see it in rosters once they start mm-hmm. back up again you know are there going to be teams that look to move salaries that are only going to rise because you know the free agent market's going to change the revenues change so the free agent market is going to change arbitration is not there's going to be raises via arbitration. So does that make teams who are uncertain about what revenue in 2020 means for their payroll in 2021, who start moving those arbitration players because you know what? It just, they may, they may not fit in the structure. I'm going to tell you this as a friend, a colleague and a person I truly respect. I can't wait to physically see you because (laughs) it's, uh, it's, it's gone too long. And, uh, I might break the social distance rule here and maybe if not shake your hand, give you a hug, buddy, because uh, this is something that none of us signed up for, but we're all trying to deal with it. And hopefully it'll be sooner and safer the next time we see each other. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so glad to hear from you and to know you're doing well and healthy and it'll be good to to talk in person. I, uh, I was writing a thing to some of the baseball writers um, around the country yesterday. And I was like, man, I just miss having conversations with these people who are colleagues and friends. I just, I miss that aspect of it. And even the guys I didn't like, I almost miss. So I'm really, I'm really (laughs) out there now. He's Derek. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Mike Claiborne. It's clavesonline.com. Derek, thank you, sir. Stay safe. And again, uh, let's get this thing done the right and safe way. And we'll see you down the road. Looking forward to it, Mike. Thank you so much for having me.